Welcome to the Coogan Chronicles podcast, a podcast where two former child actors interview other former child actors, which AJ is regretting at the moment. <laughs> I am one of your co-hosts. My name is Chris Marquette. I'm AJ Trouth. And uh, AJ today begrudgingly is joining us all here uh, <laughs> for this upcoming conversation that we're having with our um our, our the completion of our tripod, a, a good close friend of ours named Andrew McFarlane, um, which we are interviewing, which we will get to. But before we do, we really wanted to talk about we wanted to start opening up the conversation here about the transition that kid actors go from kids to adults, not obviously just as people, but really in their careers. And, yeah, and you can um, go through it. You can go through that transition. We've all done it. And you can go through it at, at different times and you can go through it multiple times. You can yeah. go through it. You, you know, there's the crossover uh, after puberty. Oftentimes kids go through uh, that transition. It's not quite to adulthood, but there's certainly a transition in your career at that point. It's really interesting, actually, because I got to remember there was so much stress on front that I that I heard in other people about what puberty was going to be like for me, you know, just the, like, like agents, managers, casting people, my parents, like there was a, there was a lot of emphasis and focus on puberty, you know, so they would, they, you know, people would wonder as your voice changed, is it going to, oh, wow, you sound a little squeaky. You know, like there, there was just, there Yet was a, another thing that's different for child actors than regular totally. kids. Yeah, no one's, <laughs> uh, no one's puberty is already your... terrifying enough. And then when yeah, everybody's looking at you with a microscope about like how many hairs on your chin and what's, what's your voice yeah. sound like? Can you make it go back higher? Well, there's an interest because the thing is pu puberty, I guess, I guess probably this is where it comes from is that puberty, which we were going to talk about transition uh, in your career in adulthood, but now we're talking about puberty, but puberty, right, can affect people really fast. And so when you're casting a role for a kid and let's say this kid has to be on a TV show for years or has to be in a movie for a couple of months, sometimes a couple of months can make a big difference. Or sometimes, uh, you know, if you've got a show, let's say that's planned out, like I remember I watched watched Game of Thrones, like maybe season two to three. And there was a couple of kids on Game of Thrones where I was like, wow, that kid hit puberty real fast. Like you just, <laughs> you come back next season and you're a foot taller and you, you look and sound like a grown ass man. And that yeah. is, and, and so that can be a real concern for people um, in the entertainment industry what? when casting kids or agents that represent you or your parents uh, taking you out for roles. Well, and that's so, true. I, and, and that's a, a slightly different subject. Like when you're a part of a production and you know that that transition is going to take place, how do you deal with it and, and still continue playing that same character? But yeah. I think more, you know, more importantly, and, and sort of, uh, you know, along the scope of, of what we want to touch on here is in, as you look at your career and you're known for a, as a prepubescent kid and you you play certain roles and you have a certain look and characteristic, you're known a certain way. And then you start auditioning for those same casting directors when your voice has dropped, when you've grown, when you have hair on your face and they look at you differently. And basically what we're talking about is that the resume that you've built up as that prepubescent kid no longer applies once yeah. you make that transition. And that's yeah. the transition that we're talking about. So you you hit it yeah, when you puberty, then you go into adulthood, right? So maybe it's 18, 19, 20, 21, somewhere in there, somewhere in that bracket, you start mm -hmm. to move into adulthood. And once again, the resume that you've built up prior to that point somehow no longer matters. 
Yeah. I mean, that that, that is, I think, true, you know, we'll say this over and over again, I feel like in conversations, it's true for every single former kid actor. It's true for Christian Bale and Drew Barrymore and Leonardo DiCaprio and Jodie Foster, as well as like just the, you know, the kid you saw in a few commercials and then, uh, you know, well, one it's true of jo- for Jonathan Lipnicki or yeah, it's true for, Osment or Yeah, exactly. It's true for anybody. I think there does, there comes this point where you're transitioning from kid actor into adult actor if you choose to continue acting. Right. And, and that transition for everybody, I don't know if anyone realizes this or not, your slate is wiped clean. It really is just wiped clean. I think 99% of the time uh, within the entertainment industry. And, and, I, and I think for good reason sometimes because, you know, what kid actors are expected to do versus adult actors, obviously it's total, two totally different things. I think a lot of that transition uh, for kids, I think a lot of it depends on how that transition goes can really depend on the type of work you were doing. So I think for a lot of, you'll see former child actors that did a type of adult uh, work, like adult content or movies for adults made, uh, you know, or roles that were um, more sophisticated than just perhaps like a kid on a sitcom or something. Mm -hmm. And that transition can look very different than someone who, yeah, has been like, you know, the, you know, uh, uh, the goofy kid in class and whatever TV show, and suddenly they're 20, they look totally different. And you don't even know if, if they're capable of doing anything else. You well, know? then the, and then the next layer to add on to this, when we, as we talk about transition is when, when you have been a child actor and you are now an adult, you find yourself living a life based on a decision that you made as a young person. Maybe you were four year old, four years old, maybe you were 13 years old, but regardless, now you're 20 and you're living a life based on a decision that you made as a child. And you have to re-up, you have to reaffirm your yeah. commitment to this thing because you you can't you know essentially be a slave to your younger self. You have yeah. to now or, remake that decision. Exactly, which I think everybody could relate to and understand in life. But there is something you know. Not often, I think, when people are coming to a point in their lives, usually in their in high school and when they're teenagers and into their early twenties, where they're trying to figure out and decide what they'd like to do with their lives. That for a lot of former kid actors, you're like, well, I guess I already know. At least you're going to start there in your head, right? Uh, is my guess. And you go, well, I already know. I've been doing it, and I've been doing it professionally, and I've been making a living at it. And other people expect that I want to continue doing this. So there's there's a whole other uh, reality, I think, that form, former kid actors suddenly find themselves in. And you're right. And I think re, that you have to revisit decisions you made at 12 or eight right. and, and find a new relationship to those decisions. And for some people, it's continue. And for some people, it's, uh, dude, I'm out. I'm yeah. no part of this anymore. And what you're really hoping for is that there's synergy between those two things, that if you decide to recommit yourself to a life as an actor, that also the industry that you need to participate in is welcoming you with open arms and you know is is wanting to have you basically well, you hope, and that you're not yeah, being you kicked hope. out because no, people exactly. do get kicked out yeah people get kicked out and i mean people get kicked out at 50 but you know yeah getting kicked out at 16 blows well right because <laughs> you, know, you didn't like, go because you didn't grow up the way that they wanted you to right yeah exactly you had no control over and then all of a sudden you're kicked out so you know yeah. you hope that there, there's synergy with those those two decisions but it's something that every former child actor goes through and um you can go through it multiple times and it ain't easy it ain't easy. It absolutely isn't. Well, today, folks, we're talking to uh, a guy named Andrew McFarlane. 
and Andrew is AJ and I's, um, as I mentioned, is he's like the family. O- yeah, he's the yeah. only person I've known in LA longer than you, Chris. Yes, that's true. But by like six months, probably. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Th- yeah. I, I, Andrew and AJ and I have been um, three peas in a pod for uh, literally our entire adolescence and adulthood. And, um, uh, and and Andrew is perhaps the, one of the most wonderful human beings I've ever met. And I've always been so proud uh, to call him a friend. And Andrew, we know so intimately, we saw Andrew's transition out of uh, being a kid actor into his adulthood so well. I mean, we we all, I think we even, I, I'd argue we would, we sculpted each other's decisions and it influenced each other's decisions very heavily uh, throughout our lives. And so, you know, we, we know what this looks like for Andrew very well. And it's really fascinating that we get to talk with him and share um, share this, uh, this intimate knowledge with you guys. Uh, if you don't know who Andrew McFarlane is, Andrew's probably known the most from a TV show he did for years and years. Uh, the Damon Wayne show called my wife and kids, a sitcom on ABC. Uh, he was the boyfriend of, uh, Damon Wayne's daughter on the show. He was like this, uh, religious kid that was really goofy and really nerdy and absolutely hysterical. And, uh, and Andrew worked on a thousand other things. I mean, he, you know, did all kinds of TV shows. He did the West wing for a long time, the Bernie Mac show. He was on ER for a few episodes. He did the Amanda show, the King of Queens, seventh heaven. I, the list goes on and on and on and on. Uh, he also worked with the Wayne's brothers in a movie called dance flick after the the show ended. Uh, so he had a really long, really interesting career and uh, we're really excited for him to share um, not just how he got into acting, but uh, how he got out of it. Um, and uh, yeah. And with further ado, our beloved close friend, Andrew McFarlane. Okay. We're here with our very good friend, Andrew McFarlane, all the way from Bali. How's it going? All the Andrew? Way from Bali. Yeah. Great. <laughs> yeah. Good. Uh, it's, a little <laughs> after, it's a little after six, uh, thir- uh, about six a.m. and I'm feeling good. How are you guys? We're good, man. We're excited to Everything's good. Excited to have you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like a uh, good friend was a, a muted way of explaining how close we, we, we all actually are. I mean, how, how close would you say we all are, Andrew? I would say that you guys are the closest things to being my siblings and brothers and that are not actually my siblings and brothers I, you know we've known each other now for over 20 year 20 20 plus years what 22 years or something insane like that that's true yeah and, and we were saying like what what don't we know about you at this point we were thinking about asking you questions we're like what don't we know about andrew i don't know if there's anything that's we don't know question. about you i mean i yeah it is right probably yeah. that'd probably be like what do i not know about myself and that's an impossible question yeah. to answer <laughs> yeah yeah, exactly. I used to joke. Uh, I used to joke that like I know you so well that you you were like like when I lost my virginity, I like excused myself from the room and called you to be like, I did it. I it happened. Like that's how close. <laughs> <laughs> like that's there's, how close. N- there's nothing that's creepy close about that story, Chris, <laughs> yeah. except the way that you whisper. I did it. <laughs> that's yeah, the only well, creepy part. Okay, that, that is super <laughs> creepy. But that's uh, that's how close we are. That's an illustration. <laughs> Well, look, man, we're really excited to explore. Maybe we'll find out something about you we don't know. We'll see. You know, tell us about maybe, you know, your whole career acting as a kid. You started, what, how old were you when you started, you think? I started actually modeling when I was 12 and I found, well, let's kind of, it's funny because my 
inspiration, and there were many, but one of my primary inspirations was I didn't like school. Uh, I remember going from elementary school to middle school, and, and I heard in the fifth grade that there was no more recess in middle school. And I was like, wait, what? There's no, wait, so you don't have like a couple hours that we can, I, I, I legitimately, I, I remember the moment. Like, I remember the moment where I was like, I got to get out of here. And I, I made gotta, a plan. I got to find a way out. I, it, I really? really made it. I swear. I swear. Become a male model? Yeah. Well, those things kind of coincided. I didn't go and pursue it, but I had it in the back of my mind that there's got to be a way out and I got to figure out how to make money now and not <laughs> need to go to school. And so I, I, I came home one day and my sister had heard uh, on the radio an ad for these kind of um, recruitment companies that were looking for child models and actors. And she's like, this sounds interesting. You want to go? And I said, definitely. Let's go. And one thing led to another. Um, some people said, hey, you're not a bad looking kid. Let's get you in some, um, you know, we'll start sending you out for auditions for modeling. And so I went to New York for a little while, then came back to LA. I'm sorry, back to Florida where I'm from. And then eventually moved to LA. But yeah, I started modeling and acting kind of loosely around 12 years old. And it worked, you know, I didn't have to go to school anymore. So Mission accomplished. Um, <laughs> you got the longest recess ever. Is this a common theme for you where there's a you see a problem and then you make the most elaborate solution to that problem possible? <laughs> like, okay, so the whole, I don't want to go to recess. There's no more recess. That's not, that's not going to fly. So, all right, let's move the entire family across the country. <laughs> I'm going to start acting. I'm going to get an agent, but I'm not going to have to worry about this no recess bullshit. Yeah, my, my mom doesn't know about all of this. So I think, yeah, it's, it's much better that she doesn't know that that was my primary motivation. Um, but all in all, for me, huge success. Um, what does it mean to be a successful actor? It's like, I don't have to go to school. <laughs> That's what it means to me. That's fulfillment. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that well, was it's the interesting to hear that that part wow. of your story, because Chris and I have talked about how we both got started and and. Our two stories incredibly different. Chris was acting before he even knew that he was actually acting, and mine was a very, a very deliberate choice. You know, watching movies and going, "Oh, I want to be a part of that." Okay, let's figure out how I get to be a part of that. Right. And yours is, I don't want to go to school anymore. So right. what can I do? Yeah, I guess acting will work. Right. It's funny too because I think in hindsight, you know, a lot of my friends growing up, who. Uh, weren't the most supportive because they kind of felt abandoned. I don't know if you guys ever had this experience, like when you move away from your hometown and your friends are like, why are you leaving us? Um, they felt a little bit abandoned, uh, but they came back to me and they're like, you know what, Andrew, it kind of makes sense because you were always performing. Like, And I thought about it. I was like, yeah, I was always doing like Michael Jackson routines for you guys. And like, I don't know why I was always performing. <laughs> so th there was definitely a part of it that was in inherent. It wasn't like um, my whole existence, existence was contrived out of the, the idea of not wanting to be in school. Um, but I think it took a little while to look back and say, yeah, I kind of have been and always been to a certain degree a performer um, as well. So did that did, did, did that all of a sudden ring true for you to a certain point? Like, was there a point where you went from deciding I want to be an actor to so that you can make sure you have a long recess and not be in school to like, oh, I actually really enjoy this. I am a performer. I, this is something I, I really care about. Was there a specific instance or did it all? I don't think there was like a singular moment because I also think that that quality developed in me just like anything, you know, it's like you can have mm -hmm. a spark or a seed of something inside of you and it's another thing for you to cultivate the full living, you know, tree or, um, yeah, manifestation of, of a certain quality, um, that's mm -hmm. dormant. So, uh, 
so no, but I definitely also feel that the process of being an actor is, is one that is so uh, introspective. It's so kind of cathartic as well that it just, it, it brings you to places that even if also, you know, and, and also part of the impetus for me was I was interested as I started going on auditions, I was very intrigued by the idea that I was scared of people's judgment. Like I was like, why am I nervous when I'm in this room? Like, why do I care what these people think? It's just people. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I was very interested. Um, you were having those thoughts at, at 12 or is that something you came to later? Oh, wow. No, that was like 12. I think I remember like the very first few auditions and just being like, why do I care? Like, why does this mean something to me? And, and I, I, I really had the strong, uh, inspiration to figure that out and get over it. And I, and, and, you know, that to me, it's not a, um, just a cerebral kind of cognitive process. A lot of it is becoming more of yourself and overcoming fear of judgment and, and, and putting the power of, of your value in other people's hands, which is, it's kind of an interesting thing. Cause I oftentimes say that acting, um, it's almost like sometimes you start doing it because you want to be something right you want to matter you want to be important you want to feel valued and then Mm -hmm. if you actually get to that place you don't even want to like for me I just didn't even want to act anymore and and it's not only because of that because I did have and and do have a love for the actual craft and the experience you know it's like it's hard it feels painful for me that I don't do that on on such a regular basis Um, but simultaneously on another level like knowing that we don't do everything in our life for one reason, right? Like the parts of me that were inspired to be an actor for um, that, for like the the desire to find myself and become more confident and become more of who I am. The more I found that, the less I felt the need to like walk into an audition and say, are you going to give me a job? Like I was like, I, that the idea of that started mm. to perplex me. Hmm. Sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Ultimately, the thing that got you into acting is the thing that, and we'll, we'll elaborate on this, but the thing that got you out of it as well. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I think that's an interesting point too. I mean, you know, a lot of kid actors, I think we've talked to and that we're going to talk to aren't as conscious about the audition process and who they are and, and what's going on inside of them a lot. A lot of talking, myself included, talk a lot about how you're not really you're not really sure what you're doing at all to begin with. You're just kind of going along for the ride. And then there do come these moments where you do suddenly go snap into it and think, what am I doing? What? Am I, oh, wait, how did I do that? You know, it's interesting because I see that it kind of happens two ways. Like people who are acting for a very long time that, you know, I would say are, are proficient in whatever manner that you want to judge that. But that either one of two things happens is that they become human beings that are almost completely um unconscious of themselves right like it's almost like their their ego disappears right or they become completely self-centered right it's like the thing that gets them through that is this inflated sense of self so you can go in both ways in a very extreme um manner right it's like Mm -hmm. you have to either inflate your confidence to an unrealistic uh dimension where you believe that you're a god and that allows you to <laughs> exist in a certain way, which, I, you know, we've all seen, right? We, and then yeah, that, sure. Yeah, that comes totally. crashing down or you just become totally absent to yourself and you have no self-awareness because you just don't care anymore. So let me ask you this, Andrew. What would you say were the highlights of your career as an actor or the things that stand out to you the most um, from your memory? Yeah. First thing that comes to mind is I remember that moment that I got the call. Um, 
to that I was going to be on My Wife and Kids, uh, which is a TV show that I was on for a number of years. And I remember just being so elated. I was like literally jumping in the air because it was, it was, it, it was, yeah, I don't think I'd ever, you know, in, a, in many instances in my life experienced that kind of elation because, you know, when you're, when you put so much of your, your life on the line and your existence, you know, I think many people don't do what you need to do to become an actor. I don't know what other careers, maybe if you're going to become a doctor or something, you have to really change your life and you're putting a lot on the line. And so for me to feel like in that moment, um, which was one of my big goals is to be on a TV show, a series regular on a show that that was coming to fruition. It really, yeah, it just felt amazing. And it was something, it was a project that I loved, right? It was something that was a lot of fun to do. I love doing comedy. And it was a comedy show. So that sticks out for me for sure. On that point, let me ask you, did you feel any, was part of the elation tied to the possibility of any combined weight because your family moved across the country as well? And it was not, in, in other words, you, the, the collective effort of the McFarland clan wasn't in vain because you, you'd landed this series regular role or did you not carry any of that? type of pressure. I didn't care about that. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't even think about that until you brought that up. AJ. Screw my family. I didn't even think about them. Yeah. <laughs> interesting, way to, interesting way to think about it, AJ. I hadn't, I hadn't sense that. No, I mean, the, I think part of the reason I'm being so sarcastic is because it's, it's really impossible to escape that feeling. You know, it's so obvious you're, you know, you're living amongst that reality. I went from, um, living in a, you know, moderately sized home with my family, three bedroom house, to having to sell the house to all of us living in a one bedroom apartment, you know, halfway across the country, you're live, you, you, you're swimming in the, the reality of that, of like every single audition, you feel that, right? I don't know if you guys felt that, but for me, every time I went out on an audition, I thought this is the thing that can, can at least, you know, maybe it won't change my circumstance completely, but it will be some sort of minor confirmation of the fact that we made the right decision or not. Right. And, validates those and, sacrifices and validates those changes that you're you know, that you guys have all been making together. I get yes. that. And just to add a little, a little context for, for people listening and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. So you, your younger sister, your older sister and your mother sold the home in Florida where you lived a suburban life, all regular kids going to school. You guys sold that house. Your mom left her career there and uprooted everything to move into a one bedroom apartment with all of you there and start this this acting thing. So everyone's making a sacrifice to do it. Is that right? Just to add a little context? Yeah, 100%. And, and so did you feel like, because your sister was, was acting too. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just you that was endeavoring into this. It wasn't just right. you that, you know, so right. it, it was a familial thing. When you work on this job, was it as, what was that like? Did it, did it live up to those expectations most of the time or? Yeah, I think in... Uh, Yes and no. I think like many things in life, right, it's complicated. Um, yes, it was in some ways even more fun than I had imagined it. Like it was it was almost so fun that when I was done with the show and I had to go back to auditioning again, I was like, just like, what? What is what is this? What's happening? <laughs> this is not fun anymore. Um, and so, yeah. And then I think on other levels, too, like any pursuit in life that might have, um, you know, some ideas be somewhat shallow, I should say, you know, that high will wear down, right? Like if you win the lottery, mm -hmm. people imagine that to be the most amazing thing. And I'm sure that might be great for a while, but 
reality will set in and you'll have people calling you from the third grade trying to remind you how they sold, you know, you they gave you gum or something and how it's worth $10 million now. And like you'll just have a reality hit you about um, your life that you probably couldn't imagine. And so I think for me, too, there was like there was definitely a period of having a midlife crisis at, you know, 17 years old because I thought, wow, I just accomplished everything that I wanted to accomplish to a certain degree. Now, what's the purpose of my life? Like, what, what is, what is fulfillment and happiness? Because, you know, being a little bit famous and making a little bit of money is cool for a while. It's kind of like a drug, but that high wears down. And then you have to like, look around and say, where am I? And what am I doing uh, as well? Andrew, what are some of your favorite uh, stories from my wife and kids? I feel like I remember you telling us at one point that normally those shows, that a family sitcom with, uh, they call it a, a multicam sitcom, uh, mm-hmm. would tape in front of a live studio audience, but that Damon Wayans had made the decision to not have you guys tape in front of a live studio audience because it afforded you a certain degree of freedom when it came to improv or, or something on that. Am I totally off yeah. base here? Actually, a few things I know. So, so kind of interestingly about that show, initially I did one episode the very first season and I played a different character. Um, and mm-hmm. cause that character only had an, a single episode kind of storyline, but I remember having so much fun with Damon and we were improving a lot and it was just great. And then, uh, they fired the daughter who was, you know, a series regular on that show after the first season. And then they were auditioning a new boyfriend character that was going to be recurring. And so my agents thought, well, if you guys fire the daughter, you you can probably also have the same kid who played a different character play the boyfriend now. And so I went and auditioned for that role. And then I got that role. Um, and so. And wait, first, it, am I remembering this too? Actually, even before that, the first episode you did, you were you up for his son? Weren't you up for that role? I did. I did prior? audition for his son. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. so I auditioned for his son. And then they brought you back to this other episode. And then a year after that, you're brought as a completely different character yeah and but the reason so I they that liked up, you i think yeah. so they really liked <laughs> yeah. me they liked me they liked um you. so the reason i bring that up is because the first season they did shoot in front of a studio audience um the second season they stopped doing that and and part of the reasoning that i understood was because of that as well is because there's just a lot more freedom when you don't have the kind of time pressure of the audience you can be a little bit more experimental there's just there's just more freedom there and then um, there also came a point where usually with a TV show, traditionally um, it, with a sitcom in this format, you, you know, do a table read Monday, you rehearse kind of uh, Monday to Wednesday or Thursday. The network will come around certain days of the week to watch what you're doing and kind of give feedback. And so they did this the first season as well. This is just traditional. Um, and then eventually Damon was like, yeah, you guys should stop doing that because you guys are just, you guys don't know what comedy is. Like you just don't know what funny is. And if you want me to do the show, this is kind of how we have to do it. Now, Damon Wayans is, and there are other actors obviously who have certain history, certain clout track record, they can get away with doing that. And some can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so eventually, yeah, the network stopped coming to the the readings that we would do. And there was just, I think because of that, and he, I think he also knew that like, when you're making comedy or art for the example, there's a certain environment that needs to be there to uh, foster and cultivate that thing that you're creating. And, and I think comedy is one of those things that's such a, it's like the whole show. And I think when people watched it too, it felt like a big inside joke 
because a lot of it was. Yeah, right? I always think that. And I just saw it recently. And that, that was my thought to the whole show is I said, it really does feel like you guys are so everybody's so comfortable with each other. Like more yeah. than anything else in that show, you could really see that. You're like, everybody feels really, really comfortable with each other. There isn't this like, sometimes you see sitcoms, you see like two or three people that seem really comfortable. And then as as the other characters come in and out, everybody's performing and you, you can kind of feel a little wall between the comfortable mm-hmm. people and the, the the people that are just part of the show. For that, it yeah. felt like every single person that's coming on delivering a line feels like like they've been there for a long while and will remain mm-hmm. there for a long while. Um, and yeah. it felt good. That's really interesting. It's been no live audience and not like network sitting in and having their hands and everything that's happening. Yeah, you're too. inspiring me to go back and rewatch this show. I, I'm fascinated. And there's certain shows throughout history that have done this, that they feel like they slip through the cracks almost. And they exist in this very specific microcosm or this very specific moment in history and can't be duplicated. And mm. that whole, the network not showing up on set in one major creative force or creative mind behind the whole thing, making the rules and and laying the groundwork for how things are going to happen and something really special like that can happen it's so rare you you know you almost never hear of stories like that where the network says okay yeah we're not going to meddle and uh allow you guys to do what what you needed to do to make the, the best show possible yeah. um yeah it's pretty cool that's and, yeah. and to be able to work on something like that too yeah I mean, that's a, what a cool experience that, and you, that you, you know, that had. it's, you know, that it's different, right? Cause you, cause I think the thing that people who have not acted and, and don't know is that there is a variety of ways that things can happen. Like this wasn't my first experience working on a sitcom I've worked on, you know, I guest starred and did other things on a lot of them. And you know, that the energy is just different on every set, right? Every environment mm-hmm. is different. And right. you, you see how um, special it is to be in an environment where you're like, wow, we're doing this thing that you know some people would consider to be a high level achievement but we're doing it in a way that's so relatable uh, that is what's powerful is that the the way that it was executed and the result of that which is not a coincidence right um the fact that the show what you know for me was very funny like i loved being a part of something because there's so many projects that i would work on and i you know every actor can relate to this that you just you cringe the fact that it exists. You're like, oh my God, I was a part of that thing. <laughs> right. And that's most of your It's career. like 98% right. of the things I've ever worked on. Right. <laughs> and then and then for me, it was such a beautiful thing to be able to look back and and still look at some of the clips and I still laugh. You know, I've got all these people from Brazil who send me in on Instagram different clips of me speaking Portuguese because it's overdubbed, but I still remember those moments and think, <laughs> yeah, that was really funny and it was fun. So um, that was a big highlight. Was there, was there, was there anything in particular that stands out, like just just kind of offset that wasn't even part of a scene or anything about your whole experience there? Because it was really familial. Oh, and I just want to add too, real fast in that context, like that whole project is also Damon Wayans is like a comic legend. I mean, not yeah. like a, he is a comic legend. And that was about him and his life, you know, and that was the. When I watched that, I thought, oh, this is like the culmination of his career. You know, I don't Damon Wayans after that. I don't think he continued acting. You know, no, he might've done he's still some doing things, some, but, he's still doing some things here and there, but he produces sure. a lot and he writes a lot, you know, but yeah. I don't know, but he never did like another TV show, at least not since then where he is the guy. And I don't see him starring in as many movies as he had before, but he's yeah. had this long, huge career of stand up and film and television. And he finally opens himself up to, you know, uh, talking about himself and his family in a really intimate way, you know, in this comedy. And so, and to be a part of that, 
is really, I mean, you know, a lot of shows are shows that are just a made up premise, right? So instead, you you know, you guys are writing, you know, the coattails of this man's whole comic career, you know, it's like leading yeah. up to this point, which is really fascinating. So yeah, I got to imagine like offset to be part of this with him that's leading the show. I mean, are there, are there things that, you know, that you remember fondly and that you really enjoyed and what stood out to you? Um, yeah, I think overall, um, it's a un- it's it, that was a unique environment for so 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 many reasons, right? Like one, not only Damon Wayans, but the Wayans family as a whole. They're they are the only family that has generationally produced successful comic actors, right? Yeah. And so um, on the show, you had I don't know how many family members worked on that show, right? Like I can't count uh, between. Uh, yeah. cousins, brothers, sons, you know, like Damon Jr., who's who's now has a pretty successful career. And he's amazing. He's one of my favorite actors in that family. Um, just a great guy. Yeah. But he was also writing and he would do little guest starring roles on the show, too. Um, and so that for me was also really beautiful to see that it was kind of like a family business. Not only in the show that is like fun, it's great, but they also just made a point like who gets away with that? Like, oh no, my sister's going to write for this show yeah. and my son is going to write for this show yeah. and my cousins are going to write for the show. It's like, yeah, that. So that to me was amazing. Yeah. But also, um, <laughs> overall, I have this, this, this memory because all of the Wayans, they have a very particular laugh. Like they, when something is funny, they all, it's kind of sounds like a, like a, like a, fi- a fire truck siren. It starts with like a, <laughs> So, so you would like anytime you did anything, you would hear like a, like a, a, a chorus of people who had this like, <laughs> so it was like they were harmonizing their laughter, um, which was, I always, that always stands out to me as being a, a funny, funny, so funny experience on that. I, I remember you, you, you took me to a rap party one of the years and at the end of the rap party, they, sh- they showed a, a blooper reel of the entire season, oh, but okay. they cut the blooper reel in with that movie radio with Cuba Gooding Jr. Cause they were making fun of that movie quite uh-huh, often. Uh-huh. And it was to this day, it was one of the funniest 10 minute things I've ever seen that I will never re-see again. I don't think anybody owns that thing, but it was just you guys flubbing lines or messing around set or improvising in ways that, that never made it to air and cut together with Cuba Gooding Jr. running around his radio. And I don't know <laughs> why, why they did it, but I just, it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And I just, I was like, Oh, you know, the, you guys, look, they, they look like they enjoy every part of this process. They made everything enjoyable for, you for guys, the most even a, part, a rap party, you know, for the most part. Yeah. yeah those rap like parties it. were, were something else as well. That's a whole nother, yeah. a whole nother story. Um, what's yeah. that story? <laughs> I mean, there were <laughs> there were fights that happened at the rap those rap parties. The rap party, really? yeah. Mean, I mean, really? yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like like Puff Daddy has these like infamous like white parties and like things that people go to. Like the rap parties for the my wife and kids series endings were like, yeah, things to behold. People were trying to get in, and it was just like, it was crazy. Um, oh, I do remember. I mean, y- you and I, like you snuck me in there and it felt like I got into the White House or something. It was like this insane amount of security. And I walked in and I, we were like 19 and someone someone just shoved like a cigar the size of my arm in my mouth and was like, here, take this. And I was like, what? And I just like the whole thing was like getting on a getting yeah. on a, an assembly line of just like party mode. You just got on. You're like, I don't know what this whole thing is, because 
for anybody that doesn't know, wrap parties are, you know, they can be fun, but it's it's just a big open bar restaurant where the whole crew, everybody gets to hang out for an evening, celebrate a long accomplishment. They can be really mellow. And then if you stay till 1 a.m., really debaucherous and, you know, and just a, a drunk fest. Other than that, though, they're pretty relaxed. The Wayne's Brothers did not do that. No, they no, were like, no, 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 no. Sure that was, uh, yeah. Yeah, it was real. Party. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, another thought, a kind of memorable moment was the, I think it was one of the final seasons, actually. We were in the Bahamas and part of our rap party. Mm. Damon forced almost everybody to do stand-up. So we uh, oh, wow. kind of, and the funny thing, too, is like unprepared. So we didn't have, I found out right. like probably an hour before that was happening. That was like, we're going to go do some stand-up. I was like, I've never done stand-up comedy. This is a totally, <laughs> what? And so, um, so yeah, that was a, that was a funny moment to see everybody. Do you remember any of your, your five minutes? Um, yeah, I can't say it was the most PC thing that I was talking about. <laughs> different time. Well, I can't imagine time you saying my... something not, yeah, not PC. Different time. People change. People different change. time. Yeah. Different time of life. So what else? I, I'm trying to think back. I mean, you, you worked a ton in your career. You did all kinds of TV shows and movies and commercials and, uh, voiceovers. I mean, you did sort of everything, but like the things to me that stand out for you, like I know you worked on the West Wing and I remember you talking a lot about that and really mm -hmm. caring about that role that you played on the West Wing and the content of it um, and things. And, you know, for you, are there things like, like what stands out for you looking, looking back at your childhood acting? What yeah. Thinking about the West Wing, like that show couldn't be more of a contrast to working on my wife and kids, right? Like what's oh, the, yeah. what's the exact opposite is working yeah. on the West Wing. <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah, great show, you know, dra a drama, hour long drama, Aaron Sorkin, um, who I, rem I remember distinctly at one period of time because he's the showrunner uh, and they have guest directors come on. And I was doing a, a scene where I had this crazy, like, you know, a monologue that was about half a page long. And because Aaron Sorkin is someone who is, you know, historically won um, uh, awards for his writing, they're very particular mm -hmm. about all of the words. And I remember doing a scene and having um, one of the the staff writers come to come to me and is like, okay, so you the the you said because, but the word is cause. So just remember that when you're doing the next scene. I was like, I have I have half a page of dialogue, and we're gonna reshoot this thing because I said because and not cause. All right, <laughs> run it back. Let's do it again. <laughs> um, yeah, that was that was it, it was fun um, because all the actors on that show were just, you know, Alice and Janie and, you know, this, they were just so great to be around just as human beings. But I think in terms of a, an environment that couldn't be more relaxed, that was it. Um, that was it. Yeah, that's yeah. the opposite of my wife and kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Exactly. No improv what, in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no improv. Yeah, there's a lot of hands. There's a lot of cooks in that kitchen. That's for sure. What yeah. about do you remember you told me about you did a read through with Denzel Washington for, I, I think it was, was it his like directorial debut? Andrew, how does something like that even come about? Yeah, it was interesting because I'm sure this has happened to you guys as well, or I assume it does, but it happened to me a number of times where people were um, doing table reads for projects. So the first thing that happened was um, my agents just reached out to me and said, oh, De you know, Denzel Washington's doing a table read for a movie that he's going to be directing. And they're just looking for some actors to read the roles and all that. And we thought you'd be good for this role. And we submitted you and they want to have you come do the table read. So I was like, OK, cool. So this was just part of the the process where I guess he was getting more clear on the script or he was like pitching it to, you know, studio people or or whatever. 
And then eventually, yeah, I went through the um, process where we actually started auditioning for it. And then it got down to me and one other person. And so then we were doing um, kind of like, I don't know, you consider a screen test or whatever with actually doing the scenes with Denzel, the scenes where my character is reading with him. And I remember thinking, like, I would really love to get this role, but I actually don't care if I do, to be honest, like, because uh, it was just such a powerful experience to to read scenes with Denzel and just he's just a, a powerful and, and very intense human being. Um, so needless to say, I did I not bet. get that role. <laughs> to, say it like, to say it lightly. Yeah. yeah. What, what yeah. was the movie, Andrew? The Great Debaters is what it was called. Yeah, the Great Debaters. That was it. That's a good movie. So you didn't. So you're reading. Yeah. With you and you're like this is all. This is all the experience I need is even just reading and auditioning with you. I, I yeah, don't I mean, I say care that, about the results. I say that in this. jest. I say that in jest because yeah. part of that was true, and then the other part, when I found out I did not get the role, was devastating. You know, um, mm. it was par. It was paralyzed. I was sick to my stomach. I almost vomited. Um, uh, no, I'm I'm partially kidding, but yeah, it was. I think that was, <laughs> I, that was one of those roles I really yeah. wanted to get, you know, because I think in the same way that mm. we talked about, you know, that seventy to eighty percent of the projects that you do, you're really not proud of. Um, I wanted to be a part of that movie just because mm-hmm. I love I love the script. I love the fact that I could work with Denzel. It was just a, it was a good story. There was all kinds of things to it that that I really wanted, which I think was also connected to the fact, you know, why in in the long term kind of stopped acting is because I found that those experiences were so few and far between, right? Like maybe once a year, if that, there was a project that I really- Yeah, yeah that would be amazing. Yeah. Once a year would be totally worth it. I feel like <laughs> really? 90% of actors would put up with it. Yeah. Once a year to have that that super, super high and to work on an amazing project. Also, well, yeah, financially you, speaking, you like work. the pay can be so good that once a year you book us something, you could be totally set for the year and then yeah, work I was, on the, the next, next year. I wasn't talking about getting the part. I was talking oh, about- Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> actually wanting it. You know, and then, you, then you don't get it or you do get it. Let's bridge into that and that you just mentioned your decision to stop acting. Walk us through that decision. Walk us through right before that decision and where your life is. Is a part of that, Andrew, as you get into that? I'm interested also to to know, we've heard a lot of the really good stories about your life as a young actor. I'd also like to hear you touch on what you found to be maybe the most difficult parts of being a kid actor. I don't want to talk about it. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I regret it. Uh, still some healing to do. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting because everything, like many major decisions that we make in life, some might be completely impulsive in just a moment where you think, I'm not doing this anymore or I'm going to start acting. But for me, it was definitely a gradual process, right? It was a process of me finding more success and realizing the limitations in that, right? Like that I wasn't ultimately fulfilled just because I was on a TV show and just because I was making money and just because, you know, I was enjoying my day to day, I really had to ask myself what's going to bring me a deeper layer of joy, right? And, and, and contribution um, to the world, which feels very important for me. And I, I really believe in the heart of all people. And so I were feel you, like- Were that- you experiencing any type of like depression during that time as you were figuring it out? Uh, uh- yeah, I'm assuming you were either on my wife and kids or this is just after my wife and kids, right? Yeah, this was probably during the kind of midpoint of that process where 
I would say I was joyful, right? But there was there was you know a big part of my life that I started to introspect on. I think depression might be a strong word, but I don't I don't know you know when someone is depressed. I probably had moments of of not being as happy, but um, I think day to day emptiness to it all. Or? Yeah, I feel like that was probably it. It was more a matter of existing in a way that um, had a, had a level of emptiness that that um, kind of descended upon me through the realizations of of not really. Uh, having fulfillment through money and fame, which, you know, you put so much of your life in that, right? Like that's the whole thing is you're investing all of your energy to change your life, to accomplish this thing, because ultimately you feel it, you know, everything we do is to make ourselves happier. And then if you realize that was a fleeting moment and now, you know, you're just another person in another kind of situation, uh, you kind of get back to the drawing board and go, okay, well, what is it? And so um, that seed was planted. And then I think when, you know, when the show was done, uh, going back to auditioning and starting to really feel through, um, through just having that new lens, uh, of reality, Mm -hmm. starting to feel how I was really kind of just a commodity, right? Like I just started to see myself from a different vantage point and seeing going, you know, going on auditions and finding out that either I did get a part or I didn't get a part and knowing that I probably didn't not get that job right like i it wasn't a bad byproduct of my talent it was probably just a, a byproduct of the fact that i wasn't at a certain point in my career right that was going to make that company money or bring them eyeballs and i started to also see this more when i produced my first film you know a couple of close friends mutual close friends of ours um luke Ebrill and aaron Hemmelstein. we all got together and we produced our first film and i was about 19 years old at the time and i remember just seeing the whole process from a different vantage point, right? Where we were now at this stage where we were auditioning actors, we were negotiating deals with their agents. We were doing things where I realized, oh yeah, we're making the decisions from a different place too. There's people who are very talented. We're not hiring the most talented person in some respects. We're looking for the person who's got the most clout around their career and it's just a business. And so when I started Mm -hmm. to see that more and feel that more, it kind of um, took a little bit of the magic out of the process for me where I thought sometimes it doesn't even matter what I do. And I'm putting so much of my heart and my energy into all of these auditions and there, it really might not matter at all. And so that was discouraging. Um, and, and then, you know, around the time that I was about 20 years old, I began meditating a lot and I feel that that also brought another level of sensitivity and just a retraction from existing in such an external way. Right. It's, you know, the realization that I had and and exist with is that your happiness is never going to come from the world. Right. There's nothing that you're going to do that ultimately is going to make you happy. Um, It's really going to be an expression of who you are. Right. Doing is going to be a byproduct of of your being and who you choose to be and become. And they can they can fulfill you in a sense that they are more congruent and aligned with who you are. But. I'm not going to eventually reach a certain amount of money that's going to fulfill me indefinitely. I'm not going to reach a certain amount of status or power, which is is the narrative that we're given in the world. And I feel like acting is the kind of uh, pinnacle of that social expression of of what you're mm-hmm. supposed to do, because otherwise, why would people praise actors? What are we worshiping, right? And so we want to become this as a as a byproduct of wanting to find, you know, this ultimate pursuit. And so, um, so I also felt like once I started meditating, and really my energy started retracting from the world as a whole, and therefore the industry, I just couldn't go on auditions in the same way. 
I also couldn't be blind to the things I was contributing to, right? Like I, I became very sensitive to the fact that in a lot of uh, projects that I was auditioning for or doing, it was reinforcing many negative stereotypes about black men, right? Like 50% to 60% or more of my auditions, I was in some sort of interrogation room trying to convince the cops why I didn't steal something or I didn't kill somebody or wasn't like some accomplice in a crime. And I thought, hmm. this is just, this is just not good. Like this is, this is not painting. Um, it's not a, it's not a complex enough vantage point for the human experience and the black male human experience. And so I didn't feel good about that. And so I started just turning down a lot of auditions. Um, yeah. I remember you too. You used to mention to me sometimes how you'd go on auditions and cause we'd, I'd run your lines with you occasionally and, you know, and you'd say something about how you went, went on an audition and you'd do it and you felt really good about it. And a casting person would say, um, Andrew, can you, uh, can you do me a favor? And they'd seem to get a little uncomfortable and they'd go, can you like, um, can you make it like more urban? Like, can you do that? And you, and you, you say, you're like, I know what that means. That means like, you want me to like put on like a thick accent, you know, and you want me to like, or someone would even say to you, like, can you act more black? You know, and I remember you would tell me these things because no one ever told me things like that. There was never, I was never told to act those were black. never notes. And I was like, yeah, or no, no, but even just to like, like in weird, vague, you know, terms kind of get me like no one said like, Chris, can you act more nerdy? You know, like it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of these sort of passive aggressive comments or like ignorant comments i was treated different is what i remember thinking i was like oh right. there is a different way that i'm i'm treated from the same casting directors from the same for the same types of projects you know right and i, I always thought i i always watched and thought oh yeah that's there is a um i remember seeing that that was difficult for you you know when you cared about something and you know yeah i think that it's well one you know in the industry as a whole i don't know and it, i think things have probably changed because it's been a while since i've i've been in it but at the time you know, what percentage of people who are actually writing roles uh, for blacks were black? Mm. Probably 5% at most, right? Most of them were not. They were not. And, you know, in the same way that, you know, men write for women, men write for all races. They, it's just like historically that had been the case. Um, and I don't know to what degree that exists now. So overall, I get, uh, and it's, I was actually thinking about the irony too of the process of when you get auditions, you know, mm. there's something that comes out that are like, character breakdowns and these oftentimes just live in these archetypes right it's like mm -hmm. like you said there's like the nerd there's the fat best friend there's yeah. the you know token black guy there's the asian guy who's like in the math and and i think things are evolving more now i think that it's you know as people have fought against this and seen kind of the um, yeah there's the a concerted in this. yeah there's a conscious concerted effort in the entertainment industry and i think that continues to evolve and continually needs to evolve you know for sure but you're mm -hmm. right i mean growing up acting in the 90s and 2000s was that it is all archetypes and i'm sure now if you look back through the lens of today at, at those things i'm sure there's some incredibly offensive or ignorant things that we would come across you go like i can't believe that yeah, was just oh, I, I can remember so reading some of those breakdowns because you see character breakdowns not just for the role that you're auditioning for but for all of the roles in the project and yeah. thinking like it would be sometimes they'll label the the role just like fat girl number one or something and i remember reading these things and going like that's so horrible. And then you were supposed to go audition yeah. for that and not allow it to affect your own personal self-esteem or something. Uh, and that was just commonplace before. We had friends who like, they wouldn't lose weight because they knew that that would affect their career in a negative way because they had been always cast yeah. as like the fat best friend. 
and they just knew like they they would lose their kind of niche in the industry so yeah that happened yeah dude i i have i mean i don't know if you guys remember my brother eric has a a series of headshots because an agent my brother like you know i he he had some weight on him and they came to my mom and they said look if you dye your kid hair, your kid's hair red and put some freckles on him, he's going to be the fat little funny redheaded kid and he's going to book a thousand commercials and a bunch of movies. So what did they do? They went and got him a series of headshots where they like tried to make him this archetype because it was in breakdowns oh. all the time, you know? And my poor brother has these humiliating, I think that was like the fork in the road for him where he's like, I can't do this. I can't like show up to school with red hair and kids be like, why is your hair red? You're like, because I'm supposed to be the fat, funny, redheaded kid. Oh my god! <laughs> like, yeah. and- this stuff must have changed at this point. I don't think bre- the, the breakdowns could not exist anymore. The way, but maybe it's go. more subtle and sinister. You know, who who knows? You know, I, I, but I mean, uh, you know, the entertainment industry and, and social media gave a power to you know a collective reasoning and collective voice to to speak out against a lot of these you know insensitive or dumb things but we did grow up with them and they were normalized you know in some degree because i remember when you would go through that andrew and someone would tell you like you know be more urban and you'd kind of just do it you know because you kind of knew like okay yeah i get what you're saying you know and i get what you're asking and i just remember you would tell me you would tell me that it bothered you but you were never going to say hey man that's not okay you know, and there was no room for that either. You weren't ever able to say that, you know, because and and for me, you know, I remember like my whole life I've been auditioning for like the nerdy weirdo. Like that was just it. It didn't matter who I was or how I felt or what I felt I was good at. It was just like a nerdy little weird kid who cried a lot. Like that was like what I could what I could go out for. And I, you know, and being treated like that, there there was never room to be outspoken. You know, it was just there there was not a lot of um you know, nobody cared what you had to say about, you know, on the audition or character or anything, you know, people in an audition setting just really kind of want you to perform the way that, uh, that little breakdown says, um, perform it. I think also that, you know, for me in the, in the, the contrast of now, um, investing most of my energy in being an entrepreneur where it, like you go back and you see that, yeah, as an actor, you're, you know, you're just a player in the game, right? Like, Maybe at certain mm-hmm. stages of your career, you're going to have more clout and you can do more like we talked about with Damon Wayans. But still, you know, until you write the checks. But everybody like, else. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Like, so, yeah, there's not a lot of gray area between, between you know, that between uh, someone who can green light a project about themselves and the, the rest of actors everywhere. You know, right. it's the, the there's there's a and there's a big margin. Andrew, did that inform some of the specialness that was felt on set or the level of enjoyment you were getting out of my wife and kids, as you you mentioned that at that time, there were not many black writers writing black characters, but because Damon Waynes and his writing staff and the, the producing staff of that show were r- authentically portraying black life at that time, did that make the whole experience that much more special because it was so rare? you know 10 15 years ago not really in the sense that to me that wasn't the thing that i look back on and think wow this is so great because black people because you know when you're when you're in a family you don't like for you you don't look around at your family and say yeah look at me with a bunch of white people like there's just you it that at that point it disappears right because when you're in an, Mm -hmm. an environment that's evolved enough it becomes irrelevant and that's the that's hopefully the point right is it just these things become right. irrelevant and so um 
Mm-hmm. I think when you're in the contrasting experience of that, where you are around people who are, because because that show, my wife and kids, it didn't, by the nature of it, enforce any negative stereotypes. It was a show about a family, right? That's also black, mm-hmm. but I, which I think is another problem when people look at content, right? Nobody says, hey, look at that white family sitcom, but they have those terms for like, look at that black family sitcom. It's, it's, a, it's, it's one mm-hmm. of the things that it needs to kind of, we need to get to the point where these things transcend those contexts, right? And so when you're inside of it, for me, it transcended that, right? Um, but when you're in the opposite experience where it's very obvious that you're reading a script or a part of something that uh, is reinforcing negative stereotypes or is just so disconnected from a culture or disconnected from the actual individual, just like Chris was saying, like you experience that regardless. And it's not simply because of the race, but the race is the thing that uh, probably magnifies that ignorance. So you, so you haven't acted how long? I mean, how long has it been since now? Um, 15 uh, years at least? Um, no, I don't know. Maybe not that long. I stopped when I was about 25 or 26. So it's been about 10, 10 or 11 years, maybe at most. Yeah. And do you still, how does it, you know, how does it resonate in your life now as you're like, you know, you've owned companies, you've started businesses and your life doesn't touch the entertainment industry in many ways, but, but you, I mean, I got to imagine, like I've called you sometimes I've said, Hey man, are you getting residual checks for my wife and kids? Cause there's it's MTV two here in Los Angeles plays my wife and kids literally all day long. Like nice. it's like from 8am to midnight it's on. And so I'm like, oh yeah, there's a fan base of people that still watch this show. And it's garnering a new fan base all the time because it's on all the time. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder for you, you know, you not being an actor anymore and not, you know, auditioning or pursuing that at all. If you like, if that, you know, you said Brazilian fans come and and hit Mm -hmm. you up on social media, but do you feel that in any other part of your life? Not even from other people, but in your life in general? Yeah. Um, like, do you feel tied to it in any ways? Do you like, do you what? think about it often? Does it? I think it becomes part of, you know, yeah, it becomes part of your identity to a certain degree, right? Like, and not because I feel like I'm attached to it or holding on to it, but because, yeah, I mean, I walk places and people will still recognize me and it's like, okay, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a significant part of, of my life and, and who, um, kind of what created who I am today. Um, and it's fun, you know, it's fun to look back on and yeah, I still get residuals from, um, stuff that runs in the past and, uh, yeah, I don't have a a strong feeling of needing to attach myself to it, but it's there Mm -hmm. and part of the fabric of, of my existence to whatever degree that it will persist or not. Um, I think in, in hindsight, like I kind of alluded to and, and expressed earlier is, I definitely miss the experience of it. Like to me, that's the sad part is like, if I get out of the industry to a certain degree, I'm kind of moving away from the experience of acting. Uh, and hmm. I just have a love for that, which is why I felt a lot of joy in the last you know, year, starting to like write my own sketches and skits and just performing those. Because to me, that's, that's the most amazing thing about it, right? Like actually having an idea, hmm. coming up with it, maybe something that's gonna be funny that makes other people laugh and just performing in that sense. Um, so I feel like that will always be a part of me and I, and I have aspirations to at some stages of life, go much more deeply into that. Um, but right now that's kind of how it exists. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it makes sense. And I can totally relate to that too. I mean, if I look back on my favorite days ever on set, the three of us, along with our friend, Aaron Himmelstein created a, a television pilot that we were taking out and pitching. It was something that we developed and, and when it was just the four of us and maybe another friend or two helping us operate like a camera and a microphone, 
uh, filming these scenes, that was one of my some of my favorite days on set of all time. And of all of the productions that I've done, there's something about that where you're just doing it for the fun of the acting and making your friends laugh and and doing that kind of it in this pure distilled form. Um, it yep. was just so great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think maybe as your friends, even from from Florida, you know, that you said, you you know, when you moved from Florida, you had friends that were like, yeah, Andrew, you were always a performer. I mean, I've always seen you as that, you know, it's like you've always, there's a part of you that is very, you engage with people in a way that is um, really fun and free and, and, and I don't know, has a charisma that, I don't know, that kind of exceeds a normal what would maybe would be considered a normal interaction. Like you sometimes I'm like, you just look like you're performing just hanging out, you know? So I get that. I don't know if that quality would leave you. Even if you're saying, you know, and I'm not going to be a professional actor um, and your sketches are hysterical. I love your sketches. That yeah. I just, yeah. It's some of the, some of your best work, Andrew. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Believe the industry would be my best stuff, you know, maybe it's time we ask you a couple of things that we like to ask everybody. And one is, would you do it all over again, like for yourself, or would you recommend it to somebody, or like overall your whole experience? Do you even have a, uh, an opinion on it? You know. Well, these are two very specifically different questions. One is, would you put if you had the responsibility over another person's life that wasn't okay. your own, You're would right. you put yes. their life into this industry? If they, yeah. even if you know, they come to you and said, "I want to act," Andrew, what what do you tell your ten year old? I would say, kind of like, like let's like. Uh, reduce the responsibility of having to take someone on auditions. Like, let's just think like the <laughs> practical realities of doing it aren't there. If we're looking at the emotional kind of spiritual implications, I would say, yeah, mm. go for it. If that's what you want to do, I'd probably caution them to think for things to look out for and, and give them, which does come up. I do have people like I have a client right now in our business whose girlfriend wants to kind of dive into acting more. And I had an hour long conversation with her and I said, like, here are the gifts, here are the pitfalls from what I've experienced. You know, this is what you have to be aware of. And, um, you know, if I can reduce any illusions about it, then I'll help you do that. But I would be um, silly to believe that who I've become wasn't a byproduct of that experience. And I think that in oftentimes experiences are, you know, can be somewhat neutral in the sense that you will take from it, what you're capable of taking from it. And so um, I don't look at it as a negative thing when I, in the past, I look at it ultimately as being complicated, right? It was really beautiful, mm. really positive, and also really, really challenging, but overall uh, very enriching. Like I, I wouldn't be who I am today had it not been for the fact that I was willing to take on something so challenging, which is, I, which is what it is, right? It's, it's, yeah. um, and I think that certain people have different dangers, right? Like, let's say you have someone who's around you and maybe it's your daughter and she's just extremely beautiful and that can mm. be dangerous because if they find success in a way that is a little bit more shallow and something that is fleeting that they can't control, it may not build their character. Whereas if it's someone who, um, realizes and takes it on as a character driven, uh, and I mean, not as a character as an acting, but internal character personality trait. Um, or a quality that that becomes something that they're able to build, then beautiful. Just like I think, like, I think honestly, getting rejected is a great thing. People should experience it more often because uh, to me, that's life, right? Like not everybody's going to love you and accept you. And I think so many people in this age of social media uh, are spending so much of their energy, which is why I believe there's so much depression and, and kind of rates of suicide are, are, are rampant 
is because we're living in this world where everybody's trying to be liked and loved and accepted. And it's just a different kind of audition, right? Like you putting a photo together and putting it mm -hmm. out there. And then you're like, oh, it didn't get the likes that I wanted. They feel rejected, just like an actor walking into a room. Um, so it's, it's an interesting point you raised. It's so easily forgotten that yet most people just see successful child actors of going, oh man, they must get praise all the time. But you forget that like 90% of the time, you're just getting told no at every audition you go to and being rejected. And that's probably being generous. It's probably greater than 90% of the time you're being rejected or, or told no. And you just get a super thick skin most most of the time or, or you don't last. Yeah. And you, yeah. I, I mean, I've had, a, I've had a lot of conversations over the course of my life with people, non-actors who have said, you know, they're like, occasionally they'll think that and they'll go, oh my God, I just realized like you, you talked about these auditions or something. You, you go through rejection. Like, like I've had people say to me, you know, I've maybe interviewed for two or three jobs my entire life. And I'm in my forties that, that like I was rejected from, and it was heartbreaking. I can't imagine doing that pretty much all the time. And I'm like, yeah, that's, like, that is strange. I wonder how it is. Like Cause speed, we grew up doing it. I, like speed rejection. It is. It's like speed dating. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is speed rejection. Yeah. <laughs> And maybe there's something to that where you're like, well, I might care if this slowed down. <laughs> you know, this is like yeah. I might care more if there wasn't another thought. opportunity right around the corner. Yeah, yeah, having enough time to really sit down and think about this. So, you know? so then, Andrew, also, uh, is there anything that you, any piece of advice that you would give your younger self starting out in acting that you've picked up along the way and you wish you knew back then? Um. It'd probably be more technical. It'd be like stand up straight and no, no, no. Um, <laughs> never switch your eye line. Always look at one eye. Don't have, <laughs> that's a, never blink. Never blink. Never I just, if I look back on my career, I just blink way too much. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't know. Honestly, I feel like throughout my life, not to say like I've done everything perfectly. Like I, I just accept the fact that I couldn't have known things before I knew them. And, um, and I do think that there were enough people around me to give me, uh, advice. I, yeah. And I think other things would probably be more technical, like making decisions, um, to leave one agent and go to another agent, which ultimately I felt like the environment there wasn't good. And so in retrospect, having known that I wouldn't have done it, but ultimately in terms of, you know, who I was and my approach, um, Probably not. Or, you know, maybe one thing definitely would have been to save more money because <laughs> I think when you're young and you you're making money and you're spending money, you just, yeah, you just think it's always going to be there, and and it might be there in the back of your mind, right? Because uh, money changes value, right? Like just based on where you are in life, a dollar doesn't mean the same thing to everybody, and even to me now today, it just means different things. Um, and when it's coming to you, not easily, but it's coming to you in such abundance at such a young age and you have no contrasting experience uh, of how hard it could be. And for me running businesses and and seeing, wow, this is different, right? And it can be hard until it's easy. Mm -hmm. uh, I probably would have you know, invested more. Not that I didn't do some of that. I definitely did some of that. But uh, I feel also- when You mean bought, spent less on rims for your car <laughs> or maybe on- on um on some artistic endeavors yeah maybe, well i mean i think i don't know what the, else would be irony, yeah. you know I, I kind of project and imagine the irony of it is maybe if i had not done that then maybe i'd be doing it now right like if i hadn't gone yeah. gotten over it now you know yeah. a little bit more successful as well and like if i hadn't lived that out and i thought it still meant something because you can't 
you know, you can learn things conceptually and you can say, okay, I'm doing the right thing, but you don't, you don't align with it internally. And so you're kind of always, uh, inside not satisfied and you're not happy with what you're doing whereas i feel like it's most important in life to be fully committed to whatever you do so that you can see it through like if you do have an impulse and a feeling maybe even if it isn't the right one just like in acting right it's kind of one of the things that actors know it's like make a decision commit to it so at mm-hmm. least that a director or a producing um, group can see that you're capable of committing and then they can redirect you and i think that that actually is similar to how I think we should live in many ways. It's like learn the lesson that you're meant to learn, but don't have to do it because you'll always have to be there, right? Yeah. Well, amen. And also that sort of speaks to our final question, right? Which is- Yeah, speaking of learning from our mistakes. Yeah, learning from our mistakes. And this is maybe this claim for me is like, I feel the exact same way you do. I, I really don't have any regrets about the way I spent money young or you know some of the decisions I've made, but my relationship to those decisions has changed and evolved over time. And occasionally, maybe if I do have one thing I look back on, it's the same where I think maybe I just shouldn't have spent my money in certain ways, you know. But I don't think I could have made any other decision than when I did. And you and I, you know, because we, you know, have been so close. I mean, when I look back at our lives, we, I think I even helped you know, you and maybe you helped me at different times to be a little what I feel is like reckless, you know, on on a few occasions with money. I mean, we did some, you know, I've done some embarrassing stuff with money where I've, you know, I mean, AJ knows like at least a car. And then I think, I don't know if you remember, Andrew, I like custom embroidered the car on the inside, you know, but it was a lease and and everybody's like, dude, you don't own this. You shouldn't do this. I was like, yeah, well, you know, I think it'll look cool. It's just Chris's really long-winded way of saying, what the heck did you spend your Coogan account money? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Why don't you name specifically, what what, specifically, what did you and I do together? Can you think of anything in particular? Uh, yeah. I mean, I know that I bought an Audi S4 with my, Coug- I mean, I literally, I got a loan on the car before my Coogan account money was ready. <laughs> yeah. went like, Look, this money's coming to me. Here's the bank account. The SAG, the, the, you know, screen actors will sign off on it. It's coming. I just need a loan now because I want the car now. Um, and so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, it's very funny. Yeah, you and I spent money on, I don't know. Do you have any, I don't remember anything that we spent money. I mean, I mean, we threw like, I always have this recollection of like, I don't know if it was their 21st birthday or what it was. I mean, we threw some parties where we, I mean, just birthday parties for friends where I think we got like blow up castles at times. I want to say you ventured, you did a club one night, like you rented out a club. You and John Foster rented out a club and got like matching purple tuxedos or something and had an open bar and paid for it. And then at the end of the night realized like you guys didn't even get a drink. Yeah, <laughs> like we just paid for an entire club's uh, bar tab and we didn't even have a beer. No, I definitely, you know? I definitely um, was very drunk that night. That was my 21st birthday. I think that was the, the like the beginning of me going, I don't know if I really want to drink so much anymore (laughs) (laughs) right when it starts yeah i feel like you also did that europe trip for a month or something too didn't you andrew so europe for i mean that money that was crazy expensive though that wasn't like a huge line item i mean plane tickets were a few thousand dollars and staying there was probably another few thousand dollars but we knew a lot of people in europe and so we were staying and i was probably staying in hostels and i we did it really really cheaply at that point i think just yeah yeah we were there for so long um and american currency was not and I, I still think is not i don't know where it's at today but you know euros are are not cheap um but that that was well, despite despite all of the awesome stuff that you spent 
money on and some of the cool th- things you did and experiences. You're one of the few people I know that took, I mean, essentially you've taken the money that you made as an actor, as a young person and parlayed that into multiple businesses and real estate investments and other investments. And now you are a full-fledged entrepreneur who counsels other entrepreneurs to become successful. And that's that's your entire life. But correct me if I'm wrong, you parlayed essentially the money you made off of acting into starting your business career, right? Yeah. Yeah. I took the money that I had and opened up a juice truck and then opened up a juice bar storefront. And yeah, had I not had that money, not to say, yeah, maybe I could have raised it from investors. I don't know how well that would have gone. Um, but that is true. That's what I did. So it wasn't all just clubs. It wasn't all just nope. club bar tabs. Nope. <laughs> nope. Some other good decisions in there. Well, I mean, I don't, I really love talking to Andrew. I, I think, you know, a lot of what you said today, as I've known you too, you know, it's no surprise to me, but the, you know, you, you, confronted and contended with things that I think every child actor does. And you always seem to manage to find humility and find um, uh, a really positive path forward in your life. Absolutely. Um, and and it's wonderful and awesome and inspiring. And, you know, and I've always been proud of you and, and, uh, and I love you. And I'm really appreciative we get to share this part of your life with people um, via this podcast. Thank you, guys. Thank you.